And if you would turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah uh, chapter 11. And the church Bibles, that's page 495. And in the large print, uh, 764. Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, and tonight we're going to look at chapter uh, 11 and down to chapter 12 and verse 26. I'm going to begin by uh, reading this, but I'm going to read it in different sections, so I don't have to read uh, every single name uh, in this passage, because there is a lot of them. But in not doing that, that's more um, to help me as I read it. It's not to say in any way, shape, or form uh, that the names are not important. We'll see uh, as we uh, speak of this passage that these names are important. Every word of this book is the word of God, and that includes every name uh, that is written in this passage. Uh, So don't think that I'm not reading them because they don't matter. They matter greatly. Uh, I'm not reading them partly for time and partly uh, for my voice and uh, for you in that case as well. So I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 4, and then I'll explain uh, the verses that I'm reading As we go. So let's uh, begin uh, from verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, the the leaders of the people uh, settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants, lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in their various towns, while the other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem." And then we have a list of those who went to live in Jerusalem. Uh, We have in verse 4, the descendants of Judah. Then from verse 7, from the descendants of Benjamin. Then from verse 10, uh, from the priests. From verse 15, from the Levites. Uh, From verse 19, uh, we read of the gatekeepers that went. And then in verse 20... Uh, we read these words, and I'll read down to the end of uh, chapter 11. The rest of the Levites, of the Israelites, with the priests and Levites, were in all the towns of Judah, each on their ancestral property. The temple servants lived on the hill of Ophel, and Zehar and Gishpah were in charge of them. The chief officer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mathaniah, the son of Micah. Azi was one of Asaph's descendants, who were the musicians responsible for the service of the house of God. The musicians were under the king's orders, which regulated their daily activity. Uh, Pethahiah, son of Meshazebul, one of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in all affairs relating to the people. As for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its surrounding settlements in Debon and its settlements in Jechabzeel and its villages in Jeshua 
in Moladah, in Beth Pelet, in Hazar Shual, in Beersheba and its settlements, in Ziklag, in Mekonah and its settlements, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanua, Adalam, and their villages, in Lachish and its fields, and in Azekar and its settlements. So they were living all the way from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The descendants of the Benjamites from Geba lived in Michmash, Ajah, Bethel and its settlements, in Anathoth, Nob, and Ananiah, in Hazor, Ramah, and Gitaim, in Hadid, Zeboim, and Nebalat, in Lod and Ono, and in Gei Harashim. Some of the divisions of the Levites of Judah settled in Benjamin. Then in chapter 12, we have a new list. In verse 1, it talks of, uh, these were the priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Joshua. And then it gives a list of names who returned with Zerubbabel. Uh, that was about 100 years before the time of Nehemiah. Uh, then uh, in verse 10, we read, uh, Joshua was the father of Joachim, Joachim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joida. Now these were the generation after Zerubbabel. And then from verse 22, we begin to read of the present day of Nehemiah. It says, The family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashib, Joadiah, Johanan, and Jadua, as well as those of the priests, were recorded in the reign of Darius the Persian. The family heads among the descendants of Levi up to the time of Jehoanan, son of Eliashib, were recorded in the book of the Annals. And the leaders of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Jeshua, son of Cadmiel, and their associates, who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to another, as prescribed by David, the man of God. Mataniah, Bakbakiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the gates. They served in the days of Joachim, son of Joshua, the son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law. This is God's word. And as I said, all the names that I didn't read uh, are also God's word. Uh, and we'll speak of these names and the purpose of this passage uh, uh, as we go through uh, this sermon. But before we begin, I just want to give a little uh, story to introduce us to this passage that I think will help us understand a little bit of what this is about. Up until uh, quite recently in human history, uh, one of the biggest fears and killers of mankind uh, was plague. Plague. Uh, for example, the Black Death in the mid-1300s killed 200 million people. A third of the population of Europe was killed by the Black Death. It didn't uh, discriminate with men, women, and children, even of age. If you got the plague, the likelihood would be that you would die. And throughout human history, plagues have been a common occurrence. Uh, it's not something we think about too often because we don't uh, see it so much today. Uh, COVID, as bad as it may have been, has been nothing like the Black Death. But plague was terrifying for humanity for many 
hundreds of years, thousands of years. But in the mid-1500s, when the pastor John Calvin was ministering in Geneva, Switzerland, his city became subject to the plague. And they set up and built hospitals outside of the city for the sick to quarantine in. And the leaders of the church in Geneva faced a dilemma. Who would minister to the spiritual needs of the sick people in the hospitals where people are quarantining in who had the plague? As Christians, we believe that rejecting Jesus Christ results in God's judgment in hell. And that is far worse than any plague, even the Black Death. And so to love their people, the pastors there felt that they needed to provide more than just a hospital to meet the physical needs of those who were dying. They needed to share the gospel with those who were dying so that they would not face God's judgment if they accepted Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for their sin. But this produced a dilemma for these pastors. If they were to go in and share the gospel, then in all likelihood, they also would die of the plague. The question was, who would go? Would you go? Because it doesn't need to be a pastor that goes to share the gospel. We believe that every Christian has the ability and the office to share their faith, to share the gospel so that people may be saved. Would you go? Would you go to the hospital and catch the plague but share the gospel? Well, first of all, a man called Pierre Blanchet went to this hospital. It was a great surprise that he survived for many months in which he shared the gospel with the sick and dying. But after a number of months, he died. And so the company of pastors in Geneva decided, just like in uh, Nehemiah chapter 11 and verse 1, to cast lots to decide which of them would go to the hospital and minister to the sick. But it ended up being the case that many of those who drew the lot refused to go to the hospital. And so they relied on volunteers who would go and face death so they could share the gospel with the dying. And people did go, people did share the gospel, and people came to faith and are in heaven because of the courage of those that went to tell them of Jesus. I think those pastors are heroes, aren't they? That they would go and do that work. They loved God and they loved their people so much that they were willing to settle down in a plague-infested hospital in order to share the gospel with those who needed to hear. Now, that is an extreme example 
But it goes to show that sometimes following Jesus calls us out of our comfort zones, into his service, and sometimes into danger in his service. And that's what we are seeing going on in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1, really down to chapter 12 and verse 26. We see a people who have been revived through God's word in chapter 8, who have confessed their sins to God in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, have committed not to neglect the house of God, which is where we ended last week. And as we come to chapter 11, they have to deal with a problem. And the problem was that the house of God, which they were not to neglect, was in the city of Jerusalem. And I want you just to turn back in Nehemiah to chapter 7 and verse 4, where we read of a problem with Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 4 says, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. They had a temple, they had a wall, but they didn't have people living in the city. And if there was no people living in the city of Jerusalem, that was a problem. It was a problem for the functioning of the temple, which was where people went to worship God. It was a problem for the security of this city because There was no point in having walls if there was no one to defend the city from those walls. It was a problem for the economy, which wouldn't even exist in a city where there was no people. And in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the holy city. The holy city of God. It's it's named the holy city a number of times in this passage. It was the dwelling place of God. It was the place from which, in the Old Testament, God displayed himself. He showed himself to the world from this city. And if the city of Jerusalem was a mess, if it wasn't able to function, if it wasn't defended, if there was no one to to serve in the temple, then it would not represent God well. And if the God of Israel is the only hope for the world... Well, then the world needs the God of Israel to be displayed and shown off. And so the city of Jerusalem needed people in there so that it could fulfill its function of displaying God to the world. And so in chapter 11, we come to the solution to the problem of a small population. The solution was people are going to have to move from the comfort of their homes and settle in the holy city. And that's what I've entitled this sermon. It's called Settling in the Holy City. The word settled is used there in in verse 1 and in verse 3 of chapter 11. It's what this chapter is all about. How, or rather, who of God's people settled in the city of Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, the people of God are the church We don't all need to go on a pilgrimage or or get on a flight and go and see uh, Jerusalem. That might be a nice thing to do, but we don't have to do that. 
in order to worship God. Rather, God's dwelling place is with his people, his church. And and, and because the church is the display of God's glory in the world, it is the church of Jesus Christ that is being populated. It is the church that we need to settle in today. A Christian could be described, actually, as one who has settled into a new kingdom, living under a new king, following his ways. And so as we look at these settlers in Jerusalem, we're going to see what it means for us as God's people to settle in God's place, which for us is the church of Jesus Christ. So what does this, uh, this list of names really teach us about settling in the holy city? Well, first of all, we see that to settle is to sacrifice. To settle is to sacrifice. We see this really in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, we see the leaders of the people were already in Jerusalem, but the leaders of the holy city needed people with them. And so we can see that in verse 1, to settle in Jerusalem was a sacrifice. The people who would come and live in the city would have to leave their own towns, their occupations, their friends, their family, their comforts to come and live in this city. And leaving those comforts behind would be leaving something that they know, something that they love, in order to move into a city which, for a lack of a better term, was really a bit of a dump. The walls may have been nice and the temple, but nothing else was much going on there. Not many had been living there. There wouldn't have been much in terms of economic prosperity. Whatever work they would begin would have had to start from scratch rather than coming into something already established. Going to Jerusalem may sound exciting for us, but it was not exciting prospect for the people at this time. Not everybody in the province would need to move there. But to make it fair, the people cast lots to decide who would go and live in Jerusalem. A bit like they had to in Geneva to decide who would go to the hospital. The difference here, though, was people had no choice. They had to go. Well, look at verse 2. It says there, The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, this verse can be taken one of two ways. Either the people who drew lots went voluntarily or they agreed to go and were commended, or it can mean that in addition to drawing lots, there were others that volunteered to go, and they were commended or praised for it. But the point of verse 2 is that the people that, that volunteered to go, that willingly went to Jerusalem, they were commended for that. That was a good thing to do. They were praised And they were commended because there was a cost. It was a sacrifice. Now, when we are called into the kingdom of God, the acceptance of that call to settle in God's kingdom means sacrifice. Jesus speaks of counting the cost. 
This is the words of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, He said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. He also says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so when we are called into the kingdom of God, we are called to sacrifice. We deny ourselves. We follow our king. But further than that, being in God's kingdom means settling into a local church family. And being part of a local church family means sacrifice. We are called to sacrifice our time and our money and, and often our comforts as we serve in the local church. But in this chapter, we cannot help but see the exemplary sacrifice of God's people who willingly did that for the benefit of the people of God as a whole. It's a good thing, a thing to be commended when as God's people, we are willing to sacrifice our comforts for the sake of the people of God as a whole. Uh, sacrifice, by the way, just as an aside, is a, a word that, that probably in your mind conjures up a negative image. Like, oh God, I've got, I've got to sacrifice. How miserable. That's not to say sacrifice is easy. Sacrifice isn't easy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be sacrifice. But sacrifice is joy. Because we find our joy in Christ as we give ourselves to him in his service. It's a joyful thing to give our lives to Jesus Christ. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I sacrificing in a way that shows that I have settled in the church of Jesus Christ, even in this local church, for the benefit of the people of God? Am I giving up my time in serving? Am I sacrificing my money in giving? Am I looking out for the needs of others above myself? Now, we looked last week at, at the sacrificial giving of God's people. But there's another aspect to sacrifice I want to draw out here. And that is this, that the people of God who settled in Jerusalem sacrificed their personal preferences to go there. They drew lots and some volunteered to leave their comfortable lives, if you like, what they might have preferred, in order to go to Jerusalem. It would no doubt have been easier and preferable to stay where they were. And sometimes, sacrifice on behalf of the whole body means we sacrifice our personal preferences for the good of the whole. And that isn't always in the big ticket things like leaving your comfortable location and going and living somewhere else. Most of our sacrifices we're called to make are really relatively small. So for example, I know for some it has been a sacrifice to get to church for 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Now I can laugh because I don't find it that hard to be there at 10 a.m., but I know for some, 
In all seriousness, that's not been an easy thing to do. You would prefer to come later. You, you, some of you loved, I know uh, some of you teenagers especially, loved the 11.15 service. It was great. And now we've got to come at 10. But we sacrifice that preference without moaning for the good of the whole. Uh, another example might be what music we might prefer. We all have our preferences of what we might like to sing. And actually, next week, when we look at the next part of Nehemiah chapter 12, we'll look at a whole, whole section about how to worship together as a congregation. But one thing here we see is we must be willing to sacrifice our preferences for the sake of the whole. There can be all sorts of things, can't there, that we would prefer everyone to do. But we're called to settle in the church, which means sacrificing what we might prefer sometimes, just like God's people did here. Now perhaps as we apply this, it might be good to think about those things at church that annoy you or make you uncomfortable or the things that when you get in the car on the way home, you might say to the person in the car with you, oh, this happened again this morning, this really annoys me. Those kinds of things. Things that, if you think about it, aren't really, they're not, they're not big, they're not Bible things that, that are just black and white, plain wrong. They're just things I don't really like. Think about what those things are. Are you prepared to sacrifice what is a personal preference for the sake of the body of Christ? To settle is to sacrifice. Secondly, to settle is to serve. From verse 3 down to verse 24, we see another uh, list of names. Uh, verse 3 speaks of the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Uh, provincial leaders seems to be like a, a, a catch-all for the groups in brackets in verses 3 and 4. Uh, and these uh, groups were people from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin who constituted the southern kingdom of Judah that had been taken into exile into Babylon uh, in uh, 586 BC. Now you may be wondering, as, uh, as we didn't read the names, uh, what is the point of this list? Who are these people? Because I can assure you, most of them are unknown. Uh, they don't even appear in the Bible quizzes. I never read about most of them in, in Sunday school. They are, for the most part, pretty obscure. What is the point of having this list of obscure, unknown names in the book of Nehemiah? I mean, they were probably interesting to the people who were uh, reading it the at the first time. They were probably known to the original readers of Nehemiah, but today they are obscure. And I think that is part of the point. Most of the settlers in the holy city of God, both here and throughout the history of the church, have been obscure. And that is the lot for most of us, isn't it? No one is going to remember us in a hundred years. Most of us will not be famous in the world. Most of us won't even be famous in the church. Most of us aren't going to write books that have our names on them. 
Most of us serve God in such ways that we're not even noticed even in the present day, let alone in years to come. Most of God's servants through all of, the, the, uh, all of history have really served in obscurity. But they are remembered by God because God knows every name on this list. He knows the number of hairs on every one of their heads or the lack of hair on their heads or whatever it is they are. That God knows everything about every one of the people on this list. And that means we don't serve in order to have our names up in history. We serve to have our service noted by our Heavenly Father. We're not called as God's people to be famous. We're called to be faithful. Not famous, but faithful. And because we are called to serve, which we'll see is what these people did, oftentimes we can find it hard to serve because so often our service is in obscurity, isn't it? It can be easier for some of us to serve if everyone notices what we're doing. It can be easier to inconvenience ourselves when someone will pat us on the back and say, oh, aren't you really good? But it can be harder to serve when nobody knows but God. This list is a bunch of obscure people who by all accounts faithfully served their God. And that they served is clear from this passage. Uh, just notice with me uh, in this list of names the various ways in which they served in the holy city. I'll go through these, uh, these things quite quickly, but you should be able to follow along. So notice in verse 11, there were people there in charge of the house of God Temple leaders. In verse 12, we see people working in the temple. In verse 16, we see people responsible for work outside God's house. In verse 17, we see people uh, responsible for the prayer life of the people. In verse 19, there were gatekeepers. Uh, just in verse 21, I'll pause there for a moment. We, we read there of temple servants. Now, in older versions of the Bible, this is often translated as uh, nithinims. And that literally means dedicated ones. In other words, these were people who were really dedicated to serving in the temple. Now, in our church, don't, we have many dedicated ones, many ones we could label nithinim. And surely that's something that we want to be named, isn't it? We want to be a dedicated one. Uh, we have people responsible uh, for setting up, cleaning up, giving lifts, making drinks, uh, and so on and so forth. Nithinim, ones that are dedicated to serving in obscurity in the house of God. And we should be dedicated ourselves, each one of us, to making sure that this church runs effectively and is a good witness to our world. Uh, just uh, carrying on, in verse 22, we see musicians. In verse 23, we read that the musicians were under the king's orders. This probably means that the king of, who was uh, in, uh, of, of Persia 
uh, supported the worship of the Lord in Jerusalem and wanted to make sure that it was done in the right way. Because in verse 24, we see someone who was the king's agent. Uh, This person seems to have been responsible for letting the king know how the worship in the temple was going. Uh, I don't think this was a spy, like the... uh, like a, a, you know, a communist party man or something like that that was watching out to report to the government. I think this was more like someone who uh, was just telling the king how it was going because the king had a genuine interest in what was going on here. Uh, I guess the equivalent today might be someone who files reports to the charity commission or something like that. I don't know. But what I hope you see is that this list of quite obscure people were involved in the service of the temple in various ways so that God in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, would be glorified and on display to the world. You don't get the impression here that there would be spectators. People were involved. Everyone had a role to play. And it's encouraging to see how the roles were varied. There were some public roles like the music, But some people would have quietly gotten on with their often menial tasks in being a temple servant, fulfilling the roles that they'd been given. Now, we've touched on this kind of thing before in Nehemiah, haven't we? When we looked at people building the wall, uh, they were working in different places, doing their job. But it's worth asking ourselves again, am I serving King Jesus in the church here in Pelsall. Am I serving him? There are lots of ways you can. Just think through the roles that we've mentioned in this chapter. All of them really uh, have, a, have a place in the church today in various ways. Perhaps you might want to speak to an, one of the elders. We can point you in the right direction. Just one suggestion from me that's been uh, coming to me a lot recently is we, we, we really need people who are able to give lifts. If you're able to pick people up for church, uh, mainly elderly people, if you're able to do that, that's a great service. Uh, I've got more people requesting lifts than I've got cars that can pick them up. Uh, that's an example of somewhere where you can serve your king uh, in the life of the church. Uh, Just uh, in verses 25 to 36, we see a change in emphasis in chapter 11. Uh, From a list of people who moved to Jerusalem to a list of places outside Jerusalem where where they were populated. Uh, The names and places in this list are all over the land of, of the Persian Empire. What's interesting is that there are little pockets of God's people spread all over the empire. Not everybody moved to Jerusalem. Not everybody needed to. Wherever we are, we can serve God in his church in the little pocket that he's placed us in his world. Now, I know we've said in the New Testament, Jerusalem, the city here is the church. This is not saying you don't have to be part of a church. You do. If you're a Christian, you you need to be part of a church. But what it's saying here is that it doesn't matter where that church is. As long as the gospel is faithfully preached, you can serve God from that location and make his name known in the world. The church of Jesus Christ is similar to this, uh, uh, similar to what's going on here. 
It is little pockets of God's people, little embassies of heaven scattered all over the world, displaying the glory of God. And our place is right here in Pelsall, where in our area, we want to serve our king displaying his glory. So wherever God has called you, serve him. Settle in his city and give yourself to serving there. Well, as we come to chapter 12, we come to yet another list of names. And you may be thinking, well, what are these names all about? Another list. Well, just look with me at verse 1 of chapter 12. These were the priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Joshua. Well, Zerubbabel was the leader of God's people in the first wave of exiles to return to Jerusalem in 538 BC, a hundred years or so before Nehemiah's time. So what we have in verses 12, to 1, 12 verses 1 to 26, is a history of the priests and Levites who served in the temple over the last hundred years or so, including the present day. So why produce this list of, of historical people just as the people are about to settle in Jerusalem? Well, I believe it's to encourage them by showing them that what they are doing in going to Jerusalem is continuing the work of previous generations. What we see from this list is that to settle is to stand on the shoulders of giants. So in verses 1 to 7, you have the first generation of returnees. Verses, seven, verses 8 to 10 make a link to the next generation, which we read of from verses 12 to 21. And then verse 22 begins to note the present-day family heads of the Levites. So it's, if you like, a family tree of history of the servants of God from the days gone by to encourage the servants of the present day that what they are doing is a continuation of what went on before. Considering the peoples of the past and how they served God encourages us to serve in the present and carry on the good work. It's inspiring for me to think about the generation before me in this church, in Pelsall, and to hear the stories of how almost 50 years ago now, this church was established. I'm encouraged by what went on before me. I'm encouraged not just in what God did through them, but I'm encouraged to maintain the faithfulness that they showed as they established the church here. And I say they, but I know some of you are still here who are part of the beginning of this church. But that service is an encouragement to those of us who are continuing the work to keep being faithful to the service of God. We can see as well, if we just read Christian biography, the amazing things that God did through servants in generations past. It encourages us that our God is the same, that we would keep being faithful in our generation today. But also what we see in, ver uh, in verse 24, when we read about the leaders of praise and thanksgiving, is that the, the servants in those days were continuing the same work as what was going on in the past. Notice in verse 24 that they worshipped as prescribed by David, the man of God. 
They didn't come up with some new innovative way of worshipping God, but rather they followed on from the generations of God's people from the past. Now, don't mishear me. That's not to say we must only sing the Psalms or we must only sing old hymns or do things in an old-fashioned kind of way. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the elements of our worship, the actual activities we participate in, the preaching of the word, the praying, the singing, the Lord's Supper, service in the church, and so on, continues on from the very beginning of the history of the church. We stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us and continue in really doing the exact same things that they did. Okay, we adapt what they did to our context and our culture and we, we, we write modern hymns and all those kind of things, but essentially what we're doing is exactly the same, you see? We stand on the shoulders of those that went before. We follow God's word as they did today. It spurs us on when we think of how God's people served him in the past for us to continue on in the future. And it's my prayer I I pray that the future generations of this local church fellowship will be able to look at the members of 2022, that's what year it is now, look at the membership of this year of us and be able to say, I want to be faithful like they were. I want to serve our king like they served our king. I, I look back on the generation that served in 2022, and I'm inspired by what they did. Just like when I can look back at the generations in the past and say those same things. May they say the same about us, that we were faithful, and they can look back and look up to our generation of service. Let's serve with the future generations in mind. We live in a day where there is a great need for people to step up and settle down into service in his kingdom. Oh, that this generation would have the courage and conviction of a Pierre Blanchet, who'd be willing even to die to share the gospel for the cause of Christ. But as we close, I want us just to think of of why we settle in the holy city. Why do we do this when life sometimes does seem so much easier outside those city walls. What motivated Pierre Blanchet to settle in a plague-ridden hospital? Well, one motivation was that he wanted others, on the, on, others to be on the same list as he is, on the list of those who are in the book of life, those who are God's children. He wanted others to know the Savior too. But his motivation was even bigger than that. He was motivated, and so should we, first of all, because Jesus settled among us, didn't he? We talked about settling in the holy city. Let's remember how Jesus settled among us. He sacrificed, didn't he? He left the glories of heaven, where it's way more preferable to be, He sacrificed the glories of heaven to come to a sin-cursed world because he loved his Father and he loves us. 
so that we could settle in heaven. Jesus served, didn't he? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He settled here to serve. And isn't Jesus the the final word from God in a long line that he succeeds? Now, he doesn't stand on the shoulders of anybody, but the giants of the Old Testament all pointed forward to him. And all we do is, is point back to him. We are motivated by the fact that Jesus loves us so much, he settled. But secondly... Pierre Blanchet could go into a plague-ridden hospital because he knew about the new Jerusalem. He knew that he could die because he was going somewhere better than even being outside of a plague-ridden hospital. He knew he was going somewhere better than the best destination that this world could ever provide. And he wanted to take people with him to the new Jerusalem. And so we're motivated not just by a love for people, but we're motivated by a hope for the future, a hope that gives us a courage in the present. We look forward to the New Jerusalem, where before the Bible reading I read earlier, we read these words. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God, uh, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And I I wonder whether Pierre in the hospital uh, would read that in French more than most other verses. When these people were dying, he could point them to the new Jerusalem. So until the day when we get there, let's give ourselves fully to serving our God in his church as he calls us to do. Let us settle in this church displaying his glory to the world around us until the day when we settle in the new Jerusalem, the city that the church of Jesus Christ is pointing towards. Well, our final song is a response uh, to what we've been uh, hearing. It's a call for God's people to awake. So let's stand and sing together, awake, awake, O Zion.
Let's go in peace to love and to serve our King. Amen.
Let your kingdom 